Yeah, I'm just looking at the notes that you put here, and I'm uh, while I love the quote "as you wish," something tells me that it's probably not entirely appropriate for this episode. <laughs> everyone and welcome to the protagonist podcast i'm todd mack here with joseph dorowski and each week we look at a great character and a great story today we're talking about peter parker slash spider-man from the 1962 comic book amazing fantasy number 15 the issue was written by stan lee and drawn by steve ditko todd uh are you familiar with spider-man outside of this issue that we read for today I have heard of Spider-Man before, yes. Uh, yeah, he has been adapted into seven cartoon series, one live-action TV series, five films, and one Broadway play, and he was just cast to be in the next Captain America film. I, which which I'm really happy about. Was that the um, live-action Japanese TV series? No, actually, that one was a separate thing. There was okay. also a, a TV a Japanese TV series, and he appeared on the PBS series Electric Company every now and then. And, uh, wait, wait, stop. And, and how many animated series? <laughs> what? He, Spider-Man showed up on the electric company. I believe. Yes. Uh, he would come in and dance and they put thought balloons above his head and then he'd leave. How did they do? Like, did they license him? All right. I'm well, going to go check that... the recesses of my mind. I'll be back in just a minute. <laughs> the, uh, the licensing is, is one of the reasons that the Japanese one is sort of a sticky issue. <laughs> Um, yeah. It fell into many of the, just the classic Japanese uh, shows of the time. I think there, like there was a giant robot, and I think he had like power blasts and things. Is is very of the time and of the place, and not very Spider Man. All right. Well, I just I just uh, in the recess of my mind, I came across a video <laughs> that's called Spider Man Meets the Yeti from the Electric Company. So, oh my gosh! Uh, look for that in the show notes. <laughs> All right, apparently these were called uh, Spidey Super Stories, a live-action recurring skit on the PBS children's television series The Electric Company from 1974 to 1975. Uh, okay, 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 okay. I'm thinking of the new Electric right. Company. Right, okay. And apparently Marvel allowed the children's television workshop to use Spider-Man free of charge. Well, that was nice of them. Uh, and all of that information came from Wikipedia. I should, because I gave it some direct quotes. So I'm going to go ahead and say that was all, which we, all Wikipedia, which we, uh, which we have come to call the recesses of our mind, of our hive mind. And there will be a link to some YouTube videos in the show notes. Yeah. I thought you were talking about the new electric company with the, with all the, um, you know, spiky hair and the tights. Well, not I don't know. I don't know if they were tights, but the boys have spiky hair. I'm going to tell you both that I don't know either of the electric companies, <laughs> and Joseph doesn't know the new one. Yeah, my daughter, she's been watching Odd Squad on PBS. Uh, I don't know Odd Squad. You should know Odd Squad. Go watch Odd Squad. Like, it's a brilliant show. <laughs> is it's just, it really? This one's quality. It's it's absurd. It's these kids who are secret spy agents, but it's so off the wall. Uh it's brilliant. Uh, it's some of my favorite writing I've seen in children's television in quite a while. Wow. Okay. Odd Squad. So, yeah, can, can talk <clears> we're not here to talk about that. We're here uh, to talk about... Spider-Man. Uh, Spider-Man. Who, 
let's just go ahead and say the creation of Spider-Man, like many of the early Marvel heroes, is a touch murky. They did not keep great notes, and their system <laughs> allowed for a lot of people to take some credit. Uh, Marvel Comics used a writing system in the early day, er, early superhero renaissance in the 1960s that was called the Marvel Method, wherein the writer and the artist would kind of have a conversation about what plot they thought should happen. Then the artist would go draw it, and then the writer would put in the dialogue. Huh. And so there wasn't a hard script. Uh, like today, comic book writers usually write a full detailed script with basic, you know, basically a panel description for every panel of the comic book. Like they describe the page layout they're envisioning. Uh, and and so you know who's doing what. Uh, but with that system, sometimes people felt they were owed more credit <laughs> than they feel they've received monetarily or uh, just in terms of who's called the creator or the co-creator. And then with Stanley, these issues get compounded because he was the editor of Marvel Comics, and he, so he was a full-time employee, so he had a different contract than all the artists who were work-for-hire freelancers. So I believe he automatically got a large... Well, he got royalties <laughs> after the fact for his <laughs> creations because just because his contract was different. Um, and... Jack Kirby, who co-created a lot of the early Marvel superheroes um, in his lifetime, he kind of got bitter in the later years towards Marvel about uh, royalties he felt he was owed or credit he felt he was owed about his co-creations. And Steve Ditko, who is still alive, is a recluse now, and it's generally speculated that he's he's pretty bitter <laughs> about wow. uh, credit for Spider-Man. It's, it's mm. largely agreed that Jack Kirby probably deserved a lot more than what he got in the long run with comics, both from both, comp- both yeah, big from companies, both Marvel and DC. Um, and it gets into like, when we hear the idea that there's a writer and an artist, we tend to think that the writer's telling the story, but with this Marvel method, it was often much more collaborative. And, right. uh, sometimes Stanley says like he, he'd get pages handed to him that he didn't remember <laughs> telling the story to. And he would just put dialogue <laughs> in. They thought it makes sense. And sometimes, uh, with some of the later, uh, Stanley and Steve Deco kept working on Spider-Man for, dozens and dozens of issues after this. I have to double check the exact count, but it was, it was, they had a good long run together, but there's some instances where like clearly Steve Ditko is setting up a subplot for a future ep- issue that like when you read them consecutively, you could see that Steve Ditko was trying to set something up and Stanley had no idea what was going on. He just forced with the dialogue <laughs> in the narration boxes to try and make this, these few panels that were setting up a future subplot, uh, to fit into the overall narrative. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. Um, and then with Spider-Man, it gets even more, problematic because uh, apparently Stanley had asked Jack Kirby to draw the initial issues and the story that is often repeated is that Jack Kirby drew about six pages and Stanley said, no, this is uh, too heroic. Jack Kirby drew characters like the Hulk and Thor that intended to be bulkier and stronger. And Stanley really wanted this to be a kind of nerdy, frail teenager. And Steve Ditko drew in that style much more readily than Jack Kirby. Though, I mean, Jack Kirby is the co-creator of the original Captain America, and he drew the scrawny Steve Rogers before he was <laughs> given performance-enhancing drugs to become a superhero. And uh, so he could clearly draw that. So some people questioned like, the validity of that. And some people say none of the reasons that have ever been given for why Jack Kirby was taken off Spider-Man make any sense for uh, the, the quality that Kirby had as an artist. Um, it, like sometimes Kirby has said, Oh, I was, I was too busy, but he drew an insane number of pages. He was never not too busy. <laughs> and he was always <laughs> trying something new, uh, for Marvel. Cause the thing Jack Kirby needed was more 
drawing to do. Like his his output is just astounding. It was like, like it was like six issues in a month. Sometimes. Yeah, sometimes. And a modern artist sometimes can't do twelve issues in a year, like one issue a month. And he was just wow. he was just putting them out. And his, his, Jack Kirby's artwork is phenomenal. And I like Steve Ditko's artwork a lot too. But they're they're very different. Steve Ditko does do um, a much more spindly style of of character than what Jack Kirby was drawing, which tend to be bulkier. It almost looks like art. It looks like Archie in the in the beginning here. Yeah, I mean yeah. it's. Yeah, we'll put uh, some some Dicko art up on uh, the website that people can look at as well. And uh, the other thing is, um, with the argument that Stanley didn't like the way Jack Kirby was drawing Spider-Man, Jack Kirby drew the cover to the first appearance of Spider-Man. So it's all a little weird <laughs> what was going on huh. here. Um, Stanley has, for decades now at this point, said he's happy to call Steve Ditko co-creator, but I think early on Stanley was credited solely as the creator of Spider-Man, and that may have caused some of the the bitterness that, that Ditko uh, expressed when he was still talking to the, yeah. still talking to people when reporters there, there's a whole documentary i called in search of steve ditko where a huge comic book fan that's a celebrity in britain uh used a production company to try and track down steve ditko and they couldn't wow <laughs> they couldn't do it they, they, ne- they never got him to appear on camera wow i just have to say at this point that um for a very long time in my life i i i thought that stan lee was just a first name well it and is in like, fact Stanley? his actual first name yeah, Stanley. Uh, what? <laughs> Stan Lee, which is he's written, you know, Stan Space L E E Lee. That's his pen name. His actual name okay. was Stanley Leibowitz, I believe. Stanley Martin. There we go. Yeah, uh, but he said he wanted to keep the his real name of Stanley Leibowitz uh, available for when he wrote a great American novel that would impact American culture, and <laughs> <laughs> he didn't want to use it on his comic book creations. Which, if we're going to start tallying them, it's uh, the Fantastic Four. Uh, Thor, Iron Man, The Avengers, The X-Men, Spider-Man, uh, Hulk, Doctor Strange, Daredevil. This is all within about a three-year period that he was a co-creator. And again, uh, lots of credit needs to go to his artists who were collaborating with him. But that was in about a three-year period. All of those characters were published by Marvel, and he was the writer That's on all amazing. of those. Uh, from That's amazing. From the recesses of my mind, I've uh, verified it was Stanley Martin Lieber. Lieber. Okay, not Leibowitz. All right. And you call yourself an expert. Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> uh, Alrighty. Well, the issue that we're looking at today is the very first appearance of Spider-Man. A little bit of trivia. Uh, well, additional trivia, I guess, on the background of this is that, uh, again, this, the story goes. And with Stanley, we always have to say the story goes because he's told these stories hundreds of times at conventions and some people question the validity of all of these. But we do know that Spider-Man appeared in the final issue of an anthology series that was called Amazing Fantasy. This is Amazing Fantasy number 15. The series was being canceled. And Stanley has said that he wanted to do a teenager that was the protagonist, that was the superhero. He had done teenagers that were part of a team and teenagers that were kind of sidekicks. So Hulk had a teenager named Rick Jones that was palling around with him in his early issues. And the Fantastic Four had a teenage member of the team. But he wanted the main character to be a teenager. And the publisher was always saying no. And then when this title was being canceled, Stanley was able to get uh, permission to put his teenager superhero in his own adventure and then when the sales came through for Amazing Fantasy, they quickly put uh, Amazing Spider-Man onto the schedule. I thought it was interesting at the at the very end on the fan page. At the there's a, a letter from the editor, and they say we're we are omitting the word adult from our masthead. A number of our teenage readers have written to say that it makes them feel a bit awkward to buy a magazine which seems to be written exclusively for older readers. 
Well, it we also expected <laughs> such a reaction, but we certainly don't want to embarrass any of our loyal readers. Well, and also adult has now taken on a different connotation. So yeah. <laughs> when the comic was called <laughs> Amazing Adult Fantasy, that, uh, <laughs> that has a, a different <laughs> meaning today than it did uh, in the 60s. Uh, really? Yeah. Glad that, I, it's, that it's not called Amazing Adult Fantasy yes, anymore. I think for, uh, for the first 14 issues, it was Amazing Adult Fantasy, and then they just dropped it to Amazing Fantasy. <laughs> Yeah. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> um, and this was an anthology series, and it was not publishing superhero stories. Like Spider-Man was the only superhero story that appeared in those 15 issues. And I just went to double-check what the other stories were that appeared in this particular issue. I mean, this is uh, now a very famous comic, a very famous cover, and it's one of the more valuable comic books that's ever been published because it's Spider-Man's first appearance. But it was also the appearance of three other stories. There were four stories published in this issue. Wow. Uh, one is called The Bell Ringer. The Bell Ringer. And this is about a man in... <laughs> this is coming from uh, the Marvel Wikia. Uh, on a small Mediterranean island of fisherfolk, there's a man named Old Pedros, who is the church bell ringer. And on a day when a volcano erupts, uh, everyone evacuates, but he says, I have to ring the church bell because someone will hear and the townspeople who are fleeing look back and they see a ray of light break through the volcanic ash. And some of them say that old Pedros was taken up because someone heard him ringing the church bells that day. Oh, what a sweet story. Yes. <laughs> the destruction of a village and death of a man. Uh, then there was another one called man in the mummy case about Rocco rank, a career criminal who is running through a museum after committing a crime. And what other job could you possibly have with a name like Rocco Rink? Rocco Rink. And he, uh, he is looking for a place to hide and he hears a mummy's voice telling him to hide in the sarcophagus, <laughs> promising that he will take care of him. And he does, which is always a wise thing to do. Yeah, and then the police really. double back and they can't find him anywhere in the museum. And it says at the end of this brief synopsis, uh, again, from the Marvel Wikia, uh, rank is safe from the police, but has he become a slave building the pyramid? So I, I, it seems like this might be a time portal sarcophagus. It's not clear from the synopsis what happened there. That was weird. <laughs> did, did Stanley <laughs> write all of these stories? Um... Let me check the recesses of my mind. And yes, he wrote the bell ringer. He wrote the man in the mummy case and he wrote Martians among us, which is the last one, which this is another one where the synopsis gets a little weird. Uh, apparently there's a Martian uh, crash landing in a small town and the people freak out thinking Martians must be living among them. But then it says they just kind of a month goes by. The aliens don't learn. doesn't make any mention of anyone coming to look into this situation. Uh, <laughs> this is a man leaves for the city and tells his wife to stay in the ha- house where he is. She is safe. Later that day, though, she goes out of the house and she is captured. And when her husband gets home and finds her missing, he makes a desperate phone call to another Martian. So I'm guessing it's a little awkward in this, you know, one paragraph synopsis. I'm thinking this man and woman were Martians that were hiding from the humans because their spaceship landed. And they were trying to wait out for the other Martians to come and save them. All classics yes. in American popular culture. <laughs> Just like Spider-Man. Uh, this issue, with four stories, it is amazing that this uh, this origin story is only 13 pages long. Yeah. All right, Todd, do you want to give us a quick synopsis of the Spider-Man origin? Uh, this is the story of a, of a teenage boy. His name is Peter Parker, and he's a nerd, and nobody likes him. And then something amazing happens to him. And uh, he becomes Spider-Man. This is kind of like... that sounds interesting to you. (laughs) 
If you, that sounds interesting to you, you can find this uh, on Marvel Unlimited. You can, I'm sure, probably find it on Comixology. Uh, you probably will not be able to walk down to your local <laughs> comic book store and pick up an original uh, Amazing Fantasy number 15, um, even though it only costs 12 cents if you can find it. Yeah, that's the cover price. I think the latest <laughs> auctions had it in the tens of millions of dollars. No, it can't be tens of millions because Action Comics is only two million, and that's the most valuable. Oh. All right, what? Okay, here. Yeah. I'll this. check the recesses yeah. of my mind. Our producer is going to look at the recesses of his mind for how much this would cost if you're going to buy this issue. It is available in a couple of reprints I know off the top of my head. There's one called Marvel Firsts, the 1960s, which is a collection of first issues of characters that were introduced during the 1960s. And I think that whole collection you can get on Amazon for like $16. And there is also a series called Marvel Masterworks where they reprint all of uh, the Spider-Man stories in order in like you know 10 or 12 issues per volume. So mm. there's a couple other places where you can get your hands on this. So depending on the quality, we are dealing with the hundreds of thousands. Of, hundreds of thousands. There we go. It yeah, is not tens of millions. Hundreds yes, of thousands. It is not quite as rare as... Um, as first appearances of Superman or Batman, because yeah. those are older. Uh, yeah, a, a previous older. generation. Um, but yeah, some some eBay ones have it on for um, like. It, and again, it depends on the rating because the ratings go very steeply down, reducing it in price. Right, so yeah, there's a ten point scale for rating the quality of old comic books with, with decimals in each, and and as soon as it's. Uh, reduced at all its its value drops by thousands and thousands of dollars very rapidly and so there's one that's listed and i don't know if it's super authentic uh thirty eight thousand dollars you know we said it's hundreds of thousands of dollars not tens of millions i just gotta say those are all just big imaginary numbers (laughs) when it comes to dollar figures for me (laughs) it it makes no difference they are both unattainable All right. All right. So, uh, when, when was the first time you read Amazing Fantasy fifteen? Uh, I'm sure it was when I was a teenager at some point in my heavier comic book collecting days. I must have gotten a reprint at some point. What about you, Todd? Well, funny you should ask that. Um, was that a few the, hours ago? <laughs> it was a few hours ago. Yeah. <laughs> um, you said Amazing Fantasy number fifteen, and I was like. Amazing Fantasy? I've never even heard of that superhero team. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and then I looked it up on uh, Marvel Unlimited, and the uh, under Amazing Fantasy, there's only one issue. It just says Amazing Fantasy number 15, and there's a picture of Spider-Man on the front. And I thought, this is interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder what this is. And then I saw that it's, uh, it's Spider-Man's official first appearance, and... And then I said, it's only 13 pages. And you said, it's good. And uh, I agree. It was really, really good. I read it with Kimball. He really liked it. Oh, well, that's good. All right. Well, uh, we are now going to go into the heavier spoiler synopsis, which if you've seen the Tobey Maguire film, you've seen a lot of this play out pretty pretty closely. If you've yeah. seen the Andrew Garfield film, you've seen beats of this yeah. play out. <laughs> yes. Good chunks of it. <laughs> yeah. 
All right. Peter Parker is a high school student doted on by his elderly Aunt May and Uncle Ben, liked by his teachers but mocked by his fellow students. While attending a science exhibit, he is bitten by a spider that was exposed to radiation. Leaving the exhibit feeling woozy from the spider bite, he absentmindedly wanders into traffic and then jumps to safety, only to discover that he is clinging to the side of a building well above any height he would have been able to jump. He realizes that he has somehow received superpowers, including super strength and the ability to climb walls. And he therefore enters a wrestling promotion to claim a $100 prize for spending three minutes in the ring with uh, Crusher Hogan, I believe. Yes. Is the, is the challenge. Um, and he easily succeeds at this, and an agent that is in the audience convinces him to make a costume and do a television appearance for more money. So Peter is seeing this all as an opportunity to gain fame and fortune. He also builds some web shooters and makes the classic red and blue Spider-Man costume for the television appearance. And he appears on the Ed Sullivan show. And after (laughs) this, he anticipates many more profitable appearances, but backstage a thief runs by a cop yells for Spider-Man to stop him. Spider-Man tells the cop that he doesn't help anyone anymore. He's only looking out for himself now. Uh, Peter's uncle Ben gives him a new microscope because uncle Ben knows how much Peter loves science and just wants to see him make something of himself. Spider-Man makes more appearances, uh, on TV shows and he becomes a showbiz sensation. There's just one panel with all sorts of headlines about this new Spider-Man that uh, everyone loves to watch. Returning home one night, though, Peter sees cop cars. He's told that his Uncle Ben surprised a burglar and was shot. Spider-Man rushes off to confront the burglar, who the police have tracked to an abandoned warehouse, and Spider-Man captures the burglar, but realizes it was the thief that he let escape backstage at his first television appearance. If he had only stopped the thief, his Uncle Ben would still be alive, and Peter Parker is now aware, at last, that in this world, with great power, there must also come great responsibility. Nice job. A lot, of, a lot of crooks backstage at the Ed Sullivan show? Apparently. <laughs> I mean, just, we only saw the one. The we one. only saw the one. So we, we can't say this was a uh, an epidemic that was striking <laughs> the New York theaters, but uh, at least one. But uh, yeah, so 13 pages, and that kind of gives you everything you need for a classic superhero origin story. It really it really sows the seeds for every everything that comes. Like... Everything that is makes Spider-Man who he is is there, and I, so there were within superhero comic books. There's kind of considered. I mean, I would say that like there's no Gwen Stacy, there's no Mary Jane Watson, but but there is this kind of te- this angst and this desire to have relationships and to have friends, which he. So yeah. And I was going to say that within superhero comic books, there's the golden age, which are a wave of superhero comic books that were first created in uh, the 1940s during World War II. And these are characters like uh, Superman and Batman and Captain America. And then this is part of what's called the Silver Age, where there was a renaissance and renewed interest in superhero comics when lots of uh, those golden age characters were reintroduced or new characters were being created, like those ones that we listed Stanley does. And I think something that Spider-Man does that's pretty impressive is that he... Uh, manages to create new motivations and new beats within the superhero origin. When so much of this had kind of been covered in the in the 1940s, uh, you have characters like Superman or or Captain America who are motivated kind of by a duty or a, a moral obligation. You have characters like Batman uh-huh. who's motivated by revenge. But here you have Spider Man who is motivated by guilt um, and and yeah. and trying to atone for uh, the biggest mistake of his life. And and that. I mean, I'm not. I, I haven't read loads and loads and loads of Spider-Man, but I have read some Spider-Man. And this, the thing to me that typifies Spider-Man is this tone where it's it, it's uh, mostly playful, and then has these moments of just like crushing 
kind of sadness and guilt. Yeah. And, and that's, I mean, that, I, I feel like, uh, this, this story sets up that tone really for the rest of the, you know, decades that have come and hundreds of not thousands of Spider-Man stories have been written. Yeah. They've, they've milked the, this premise for, for quite a while now. <laughs> uh, yeah. at times I think Spider-Man has even, I want to say in the early nineties, there are even four monthly, uh, Spider-Man titles that were happening and each one was kind of telling their own continuing story. So you could pick up every week. Yeah. A new Spider-Man story was coming out basically. Huh. Um, so yeah, they, they've done a lot of Spider-Man stories and that's, uh, like you said, that, that playfulness, I think that's something that the, uh, the Andrew Garfield Spider-Man movies captured the more of that quippiness and, you know, the jokiness, yeah. but you did still have those moments of just kind of soul crushingness of, uh, you know, of guilt and angst and, and, um, something that I think making this character an adolescence, I think adds to that. Yeah, and it doesn't stop here. I mean, there is just the injustice of what happens to Uncle Ben, who's so kind. And um, when I was reading this with Kimball, we get to this point where Peter comes home and there's uh, the cop cars are in front of the house. And I said, Kimball, what do you think happened? And he said, I bet there was a robber. And then we read and it says, you know, your Uncle Ben has been murdered. And Kimball just looked at me like, Sort of like the like the boy in the Princess Bride, like that is not fair. <laughs> that cannot have just happened. And I said, oh, he's he's dead, and he doesn't come back. Unlike you know, so many of the pretty much everybody else who dies. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Uncle Ben uh, for, is gone forever. Well, for for decades, the kind of rule of thumb in Marvel comics, particularly, was nobody stays dead except for Uncle Ben and Bucky. <laughs> Which <laughs> they've obviously broken one of those <laughs> golden, yeah. golden rules, but you know we we just uh, in our last episode we were talking about how flawed Bemis is as a protagonist, and I think it's interesting. Peter is much much more uh, sympathetic, but he's still flawed. Oh, yeah. Like he, he he the reason he feels so much guilt is because it was his own choice and his own mistake that eventually right. led to this. He obviously did not kill Uncle Ben. You know he didn't he didn't do that, but he unknowingly could have prevented it. You know, he could have prevented this at an earlier stage. And when he gets the powers, he doesn't automatically say, I'm going to be a superhero. He says, uh, you know, my family is always struggling for cash. I can actually make some money off of this. Yeah. And, and I can be famous and I can be, I mean, the, the, when this, the setup for this is really good. It, it really does kind of feel like Archie and very, uh, feels very. When was this written? Nineteen sixties, early sixties. Nineteen sixty-two. Yeah, and and, it, and this the dialogue feels very dated. Yes, and um, the the Marvel comics like today, Marvel comics are kind of produced for this age group that's kind of from late teenager to you know thirty, forty year old. That's their target audience that they seem to be writing for. Right. At this point, they are still. I mean, like that editor's note said they're writing for younger readers and it reads like they're writing for younger readers. Some things are repeated. The plot points are really laid out clearly. Like there's, there's very little need for, uh, the reader to, you know, do any completion of the story. Everything is told to you. Yeah. Including the classic moral at the end, you know, with great power, there must come great responsibility. Which is not something that Uncle Ben told him, which I always thought that it was. Well, it is in the movies. <laughs> yeah, it, it, uh, it ends up being attributed to Uncle Ben, but in the original story. It's, it's just something the narrator drops in as a moral, like an Aesop's fable moral of the story. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, and the, I mean, we, you've recently been reading a lot more modern comics, and uh, there's yeah. a trend that's called decompression of storytelling, that mm-hmm. the stories just take longer to tell. The uh, the writers and artists let the action and, and the beats breathe a lot more. Uh, and I'm just yeah. still astounded that this this story is only 13, 13 pages and has all of those beats that you, you know, that if you're aware of Spider-Man popular culture, you're probably aware of his Uncle Ben dying and, you know, his, his phrase, great power, great responsibility. But it also has, you know, the, the bad choices that lead there of him pursuing fame and yeah. and getting caught up in it. Like, even if he had the initial seed of, uh, you know, I can make some money for my family, he clearly is switching gears into enjoying, um, the, you know, being in front of TV cameras and performing. Uh, the yeah, I, I, was, I was really struck by... There's there's definitely a dark side to Peter Parker even on page two, at the end, uh, the at the very end of page two where um, he says, "Hey everybody, let's go to the let's go to the science exhibit," and they say, "See you later, sucker." No, they say, "See you, bookworm." And, and then he says, and they say, "Someday wait, wait, I'll yeah, show you them." You skipped my favorite. What are my favorite? Give our Before, regards to the Adam. Give Smashers. our regards to the Adam Smashers. Uh, which, and then. Uh, which becomes the title of of a, uh, a kind of an essay collection of modern comic book uh, writers talking about their relationships with the comic book industry or the or the comic <laughs> book stories they read when they were when they were younger. It's called "Give Our Regards to the Atom Smashers." But then he says, "Someday I'll show them." Sob. Someday they'll be sorry. Sorry that they laughed at me. It's like he he was. Um, what, what do they say about Sheldon Cooper? He's one. He's one laboratory experiment away from being a supervillain. <laughs> yes, uh, and like that's. I mean, P- Peter Parker could have just as easily become a supervillain. Yeah. Um, after the the um, thief runs by him, and a cop says, "Hey, hey, trip him! You know, just do anything to slow him down." Peter or Spider Man at this point he's masked like no one knows who Spider Man really is uh, at, during all of his public appearances obviously because the secret identity must be maintained uh, but but Spider Man says sorry pal that's your job I'm through being pushed around by anyone from now on I just look out for number one and that means me yeah I I think that this is really really well drawn also yeah it's um, um I mean it's not photorealistic by any stretch of the imagination it's it's a very stylized mode that that steve deco uses but that simplicity i think adds to uh the way that a reader kind of receives this first this first spider-man story yeah i just am, i'm amazed at um when whenever an artist is able to portray lots of emotion in spider-man's face because there's just nothing there you know <laughs> it's just these white these white pointy eyes and um nothing but the, when he's saying, um, you know, I'm through being pushed around, I'm, I'm looking out for number one, there's definitely a face. And then when when he finds out that, when he sees the thief and realizes that it's it's the the guy that he had let go, and they have these two black points. Yeah, it's the only time you get anything like a pupil in the Spider-Man mask. Yep. Only time, like, maybe ever. I, I yeah, mean, I'm pretty sure ever. I, the, the only time I've ever seen it, for sure. Yeah, it's really, I don't know, kind of, I, I thought it was really well drawn. I do have to say um, that um, I believe, at this point, it's I'm comfortable saying dozens, not hundreds, of subsequent comic book artists have cursed Steve Deco for drawing the webbing on every panel of Spider-Man. <laughs> <laughs> That's got to be so time-consuming to draw that webbing on the costume uh, in, yeah, yeah the, the, the black line webbing that's on o- over all of the red. Yep. 
Um, some later artists, I mean, they take liberties with the, uh, as ways to show the expression in the mask that are kind of interesting. I'm thinking of uh, a guy named Todd McFarland. Uh, he would often change the shape and size of the white eyes on the mask and that was how oh, really? yeah just, i mean obviously this isn't something that a mask could ever really do but that's how he expressed emotion through the spider-man mask because he mm. a lot of artists have said that's one of the problems with with the full face mask is that you can't show emotion and so some artists just start emoting through the the white eye you know yeah shapes you have to do something but uh i think Dico does a does a good job yeah, and he, like I said, is uh, the regular artist and, and collaborator on a lot of these stories. And again, with uh, with the way the Marvel method is, it's hard to say who you know came up with each of these beats for the Spider-Man origin story. But for 13 pages, this this just encapsulates everything that I love about Spider-Man. And for me, this is one of the the best superhero origin stories where you're given uh, you know the the origins of the powers and the motivations for for what he does. And I like that the motivation isn't just I want to be a superhero. It's you know. I, I screwed up, and I'm going to spend the rest of my life trying to make up for that one mistake. Yeah. I think, I don't know if I mentioned this before, but um, it's this tragedy, not only does this tragedy inform sort of everything that happens to Peter, but it's it's only the first of more, tra- yes. more tragedies <laughs> to is, come. He is uh, of the superhero characters, which, I mean, some of these have been going for 75 years, and the Marvel ones for almost 50 years now. Or 50-plus for some of them. So there's been a lot of stories, but Spider-Man just gets it piled on more so than yeah. anyone. I mean, maybe as a group, the X-Men get piled on that much. <laughs> but for any one individual, Spider-Man just has tragedy after tragedy that uh, th- that strikes him. Yeah, it um, makes me think of uh, House of M when the Scarlet Witch makes it so that all the superheroes think that they are living... Sort of living the dream. They're living their... What for them would be their perfect life. And then... And so Peter has this this perfect life. And I won't... I, mean, I don't know. There may be other things that we talk about. We, I think we could possibly visit House of M sometime. But when that's all taken away from him again, it's just, it's just like soul-crushing. It's so sad. His life is so sad. But then there's this other side of him that's so upbeat and funny and quippy and... Um, the ability to balance those two things is what uh, I think makes Spider-Man one of the things that makes Spider-Man such a great character. Because he could easily be just super dark. Right? Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. But he's not. And um, mopey. He could, I mean, he could be darker than Batman. <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Uh, I, yeah. Uh, I mean, and, why, and is Batman, ba- why is Batman sad? Nineteen eighties on. It's just been so broody. Yeah, I mean he's he's sad because his parents died, and I don't I don't remember the I don't know the the official origin of Batman, but was that his fault? I mean, in the like in the Batman Begins, the Christopher Nolan film, he feels like it's his fault because he was the one that asked his parents to leave early from the play. But is that is that based in the in the original origin story? No, I. Yeah, that's 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 my understanding in, in general is that it's it was just a random random act of violence. All right, yeah, I um I think Batman's motivation is purely revenge, but it's a revenge against all crime because it was a random act of crime. So Batman feels right. like he must stop all crime, whereas Spider-Man's motivation is really guilt that 
he didn't act when he could have, so therefore he must always now act when he has that opportunity. Um, we, I had mentioned a little earlier about uh, modern decompression, and there's actually a version of the Spider-Man origin story uh, from 2000 or 2001 called Ultimate Spider-Man, where Marvel just decided that uh, new readers were being intimidated by the 40 years of continuity that their regular <laughs> titles had built, so they were going to relaunch all their titles with kind of a, a new, you know, the 2000 sensibility. And they, the first five issues of Ultimate Spider-Man kind of tell the same story in these 15, uh, that are in these 13 pages. Uh, some of the characterizations are changed, but all the story beats are the exact same. So Peter, uh, you know, he, he's, you know, a, a more modern teenager, Uncle Ben's a little different, and there's larger roles for Uncle Ben and Aunt May in, in that, just because they, they're taking more time and space. But it's almost... 10 times as many pages to tell the origin story as what they used in 1962. Yeah, this is really, really good storytelling. How, how do you think it manages to feel like a cohesive story and not like a bullet point recap of an origin story? Because it's very easy to, to look at the way it's structured and say, okay, well, here's, you know, here is a bullet we're gonna, point. We're going to say who Peter Parker is. We're going to give him his powers. We're yeah. going to have him misuse his powers. You know, we're like, have- it, like it could feel like a, a brief recap of something, but instead it is the story. And how does it avoid being recapish and feel like the actual story? Black magic. <laughs> I think some of it is Steve Ditko's art. We've already given some credit to Steve Ditko. Right. Um, I think the way that he does his, uh, not just, the um, the way he draws his characters, but the way he conveys action and does his panel layouts and transitions from one to the next, I think certainly makes it a smoother reading than kind of a choppy bullet point. But even then, like, uh, you know, when Peter Parker, after um, he's let the thief go and he has, you know, his his rise to fame, it's really just one panel that has a whole bunch of newspaper headlines spread out on the side and you see Spider-Man performing. That, that is telling the reader all this action's happened. You know, yeah. so the reader needs to fill in um, that a couple weeks have gone by and Spider-Man's continue to make these appearances. So they, they do some clever bits of storytelling that allow more passage of time within only 13 pages. Well, it also, it separates it into like a part one and a part two. Yes. Even in yeah. the 13 pages, which never would have, which never would have been printed separately. Well, it's like the, uh, uh, the first issue of the Incredible Hulk is, I want to say, 20 pages, and it is divided into six parts. Part one, part wow. two, part three, part four, part five, part six. Uh, yeah, so uh, if uh, anyone's curious, the, the part one ends with Spider-Man having succeeded in his wrestling challenge, and now Peter Parker has built his web shooters and uh, sewn this amazing Spider-Man costume. <laughs> Which, that's always one of my favorite points in films, because uh, the Spider-Man costume always looks amazing, but it's always supposed to have just right. been homemade by this teenager. <laughs> and yeah. it's always ambiguous, like, what material is he using? <laughs> he's very res- he's very resourceful. Yes. And part two starts with him uh, at the Ed Sullivan show about to perform. Um, I am, um, I, I, there's a guy in my hometown that, well, and your hometown. We grew up blocks from each other. Um, and he carves a uh, bolo tie neckerchief, the, those things, you know, the bolo yeah. neckerchief slides. And, um, he just does amazing work and I was watching him work one day and somebody said, how do you do that? And he said, I look at this piece of wood and anything that's not a face, I cut off and then I'm left with the face. 
And like, I think that that's, that's what they've done with the story. It's like everything that's not absolutely crucial to this story, they've cut out and they're left with, I don't know. It's, it seems like kind of like the reverse of what you're talking about, Andrew, where it's like, we have to have a, we have to have a thing. So we'll add, 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 add. Right. So we need to, we need to have him being criticized by his uh, friends and then we need to get his powers and do this. It feels like, and I don't know if this is how it was generated, but it feels to me like uh, a story that was that is a real story that's been cut back, cut back, cut back, cut back, cut back until we're left with just these core elements. Versus starting with a you know with a laundry list of things that we just need to stick in. I don't know if that makes any sense, but in my head, uh, it's a far better story uh, if it if in. I feel like like Kirby or uh, Dicko and Lee could have created a story that was much deeper and broader. So that was maybe going to fill an entire issue more. instead of just a quarter of an issue, right? But that they that they because of the constraints of the of this format, they had to cut back, and so we're left with only these key elements. I don't know, but it doesn't feel it doesn't feel abbreviated to me. It, it feels complete. It's just crisp and concise and i mean this so a lot of the the comic books of marvel have been publishing in the 1950s were just anthology titles that would have one and done stories and this is clearly even though it's telling a complete story this is clearly act one for this character this is one that they're they're planning on continuing on and i mean it becomes almost beat for beat this is act one of the toby Maguire uh spider-man film yeah so tell me this so um we have amazing fantasy goes f- amazing adult fantasy <laughs> which is actually which is actually what a lot of i think uh, modern comics are now <laughs> but so you have amazing adult fantasy it goes 14 issues and each of those has four short stories in it i would have to go double check that but uh, it was an anthology title i'm sure it had three or four per issue okay and then they get to number 15 and they say um we're gonna drop adult from the thing and we're just gonna call it amazing fantasy but we're going to keep the numbering system up to 15. And this is also the last issue of that title. But this is the last issue of that title because after this, it's called Amazing Spider-Man. Is that right? Well, no. After this, they launch it into... So <laughs> this is getting into like inside baseball as the comic book industry. Marvel in the 50s, um, they sold off a company that had been doing uh, that they had co-owned that was doing some distribution and I might be getting a few of these deals wrong but basically they ended up having to sign a deal with their rival publisher DC Comics that DC would distribute all of their titles and as a part of that DC would only let Marvel publish 8 comic books a month and as a way to still put out more product Marvel was putting out all of those as bi-monthly so it would alternate from one month like they had 8 slots a month Uh, that DC would distribute for them. And so with this issue of Amazing Fantasy, there was actually no guarantee that it, like that title would become Spider-Man. Uh, when Mm -hmm. it sold well, it became Spider-Man, but they were canceling a fantasy, uh, Amazing Adult Fantasy or Amazing Fantasy to give a slot to another comic book. Um, and they had several that were coming in the, you know, that they were planning the pipeline, but when this one sold well, uh, one of those became Amazing Spider-Man. So, so the, but I guess the next issue, if you're going to read this in order, the next one is, um, amazing Spider-Man number one. one. Yes. And is that a story that we know? 
It has uh, Spider-Man actually teaming up with the Fantastic Four. It's one of the earliest crossovers in the Marvel comic book universe. Interesting. So they started it, they start Spider-Man basically after his origin. He's already crossing over. Yes, and the Fantastic Four, and this is, I think, one of the, it's been a long time since I read this one, but I think this is one of those beats that happens a lot where Spider-Man kind of feels like he's an... Um, he's the new kid and the Fantastic Four, the established uh-huh. superheroes, and they know what they're doing and he's just kind of bumbling and he, he wants to be a superhero uh-huh. like they are. Um, and even though like Spider-Man is one of the most <laughs> established and most popular, you know, superheroes in the world. And I think his films have actually even, let's see, they've done five, but I think they've made more money than any other superhero. Um, you know, in the Marvel universe, he constantly has this inferiority complex around the other superheroes. And like you mentioned, his quippiness in the comics, they, they show often like through his, you know, you're reading his thought balloons and everything that some of this quippiness is covering his sense of inferiority around these, you know, Uh characters that he idolizes and that he thinks are just more competent than he is. He's He's constantly feeling incompetent as a superhero. I think it's interesting that, 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 that first, Amazing Spider-Man issue is a crossover because uh, people that aren't familiar with with the history of Spider-Man, I think, would imagine him as more of like a lone wolf. Yes. Because of the because of the because of what happened with the studios, um, we've only ever seen Spider-Man by himself. And like I know when I tell people, well, Spider-Man's actually like a really important piece of the Avengers. They're like, what? But that's um, for that, like for when you start reading. Yes, but the, it was like not until two thousand five that he ever joined a superhero team. He was a lone wolf, wolf comic book character for forty years, and then uh, except that, except that Amazing Spider-Man one is him with the Fantastic Four, right? And I think he tries to join them, but they tell him no. <laughs> that's what happens? <laughs> and he he really is. Um, it, it was like I. It's internet fanboy outrage, or, or fan person, I should say, I guess. But there's internet fan <laughs> outrage when Brian Michael Bendis was the writer who put Spider-Man on the Avengers because part of his character was that he was the lone wolf. He, he had never been on a team uh-huh. for 40 years, and now he's been there for a decade, so it feels, you know, it's, it's become normalized. Um, yeah. And so it maybe, you know, Marvel's putting him in on this next... Uh, Captain America film, and it seems likely he's going to be joining the Avengers because I mean that he he's been part of that in the comic books, but also that's the way the studio, like movie studio contracts, have worked out now. Whereas for a while he was the lone wolf because the studio contracts Sony only had the one superhero, and that was right. Spider Man. Yeah, and I guess because I'm more familiar with the newer for, stuff than from the, the last other decade. Stuff. Yeah, yeah, then that would make sense. Alrighty. Well, uh, well I, I did want to say, uh, what is your thought on not only Peter Parker being the expert seamstress, seamster, <laughs> seam, seam, Taylor, Taylor? There we go. Uh, <laughs> but he also invents this webbing and these web shooters that are kind of phenomenal bits of technology. Yeah, like talk about um, hand waviness and just saying like, uh, yes, that it's possible and it's done. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, um, I, for a long time, I thought that it was part of his, um, transformation. Well, that's what they do in the, uh, the Tobey Maguire movie. Right. Because that was my first real introduction to him as a character. And then I heard that people were sort of outraged. Yes. Again, internet fan outrage. Yes. Um, and I, and, but, uh, honestly, like coming at it sort of without any history, 
may the comic gods strike me down, but I don't know that I prefer one over the other. Sam Raimi, the director of the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man films, he said that he went with what they called the organic web shooters, where it just was part of him gaining spider powers. Because for him, the suspension of disbelief of a teenager inventing both the web fluid and the shooter that would shoot it out so he could swing across buildings was greater than the suspension of disbelief that it would take for someone to crawl up a wall after being bitten by by a genetically altered spider. I agree. Um, and yeah, I, no, I, I feel, and I mean, in this origin, it's kind of just stated matter of factly. And like you said, it's kind of magic wand, but it's so matter of fact, you almost don't question it. You just kind of pass on to the next page. But when you stop right. and think about it, you're like, whoa, that was, <laughs> that was kind of a big deal. Yeah. <laughs> I remember yeah. the, uh, the nineties. I mean, he's swinging from like skyscrapers <laughs> on this fluid that he invented that sticks to the wall and then releases from his hand and then releases yeah <laughs> as however he however he wants like why is new york not full of just like random the, strands they established that it disintegrates after about a half an hour yeah it's biodegradable yeah he, 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 he built it to biodegrade after half an hour so that the city <laughs> isn't just covered in the giant webs <laughs> The the 90s cartoon, which was kind of my early exposure to Spider-Man, the web shooters were a big part because he had to reload them with web cartridges, and he was constantly running out. Like, every third episode, he would run out in the middle of a fight. And that's one thing that Stanley did say he liked having, when people asked him about organic web shooters versus the mechanical, he kind of, he's always very diplomatic about changes that are being made in the films. He kind of said, you know, whatever, but I always, he, you know, it's fine if they want to do organic. But he said, I always enjoyed the tension of him running low on the web fluid and, or, or even running out and then not being able to swing home. <laughs> like the fight's over and he's just stuck <laughs> on a rooftop and has to walk slash crawl <laughs> all the way home. He lands on taxi <laughs> roofs. And, yeah. yeah. I, yeah. It, it's part I, of the, the hard luck Spider-Man. Yes. Is, is that yeah. he's always running out of web fluid at the worst moment. And, um, after the films came out, uh, for a while, <laughs> they, they had this weird transformation where he actually got organic web shooters in the comic books because they wanted the comic books to look just like the films. If and new right. fans were coming in and picking them up, but eventually they just moved it back to the web shooters because <laughs> <laughs> because they can't. Yes, because why not? Because they've they've done and undone so many things in the comic books. They've been going for so long. Uh, there's Spider Man once grew uh, extra sets of arms, so he really had eight arms for a little while. Wow, uh, rather eight limbs. Oh yes, eight limbs. Yeah. Yeah, there's been lots of crazy transformations that have happened. I'm really interested in this um, this kind of dark side of Spider-Man, of Peter Parker. But well, um, both the uh, I think you mean both the the kind of anger that you see, but then also the guilt, yes. like both of those elements. I think. Yeah, well, just just how close he is. I mean, it looks like he's headed towards supervillain. Yeah, with uh, the comments that he gives, and then that he's becoming obsessed with the fame, and I'll show them. It's like he's going to be uh, Buddy, you know? He's going to be Syndrome. Yes, yeah. Because, <laughs> because he's because he's so despised, and then they they play that up in the film in the second Tobey Maguire film. Is that the one where we get Dark Spider Man? Uh, the third, third, the third film. Because the, um, when the the Venom uh, alien symbiote attaches to him. Yeah. And he but, dances. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Raindrops keep falling on my head. No, that's the second one. No, that one. is the second. So in the second one, uh, he 
kind of decides. Spider-Man no more. Yeah, he kind of decides it's not worth oh, it to be Spider-Man. Right. Like, he questions whether he yes. really needs to keep doing this. And as he does that, he loses his powers for, with no explanation. But I like that. Like, even though so, I know some people complained that there was never a narrative explanation for why he was losing his powers, I like the fact that it was kind of saying when you give up your responsibility, you're going to lose these powers too. Yes. <laughs> you know, the, part of these powers is because you're using them responsibly in right. some sort of cosmic mystical way. I thought it was more <laughs> of like a psychosomatic thing <laughs> or psychosomatic. But also, yeah, that, um, they, but it's not like he got, you know, bit by a non radioactive spider and then lost his powers or anything like that. It's just, he wasn't behaving yeah. responsibly and his powers went on the fritz. Yeah. I just, I, I think my own conception of Peter Parker has generally been that he's just good, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, he's he's this young, kind of innocent teenager, and he's just good and kind of f- fun, fun, funnier than. I mean, this is such an innocent view of Spider-Man and who he is. But um, but when you look at the origin and then you look at kind of what he's been through. Uh, there's there is a lot of darkness. Well, and it's, it's <laughs> a lot of darkness that that, that that then doesn't turn into goth, you know. Yes, but it's still. I think it still hangs on him, and he's. I think in some ways he fears going into the the more yeah. angry, um, especially now that he has the power. It's like hold, holding off the demons. Um, but it, it, another interesting part of that is that this is from the '60s, but it that side of the narrative fits so much with the more public discussion that we've had about bullying and what it's doing to, you know, youth and the idea of, you know, the snapping of, you know, right. you, being pushed to the limit. Like you, you're getting that in just a few panels here, um, in the yep. story from, from the 1960s. Yeah. That's really good. I, I, I'm glad that we chose this one. All right. Well, any, uh, final points that you wanted to raise about Spider-Man? Um, I don't think so. I think that that covered it. That was a good, that was a good talk. Do you have anything? Uh, I just, uh, w- when it comes to superpowers, where on the level of awesome superpowers do you think the ability to stick to walls <laughs> falls? <laughs> it really is interesting because it's not one that you would think, oh my gosh, if I could have a superpower, I would want to be able to stick to walls. But Because even the, even the webs is not his superpower. No, he built that. <laughs> So the only thing that, uh, and his spider sense, which we also don't get in this. No, you get strength and, uh, and strength and, and stickiness. Yes. Which it, I think it, it's really visually interesting. Like it becomes the artists get to have a field day with Spider-Man right. being Spider-Man on the side of walls and things like that. Um, but it's not like, you know, if you're ever with your friends and you're just shooting the breeze and you're like, what, what superpowers are kind of cool. Like people start to list flight or teleportation or invisibility, right. you know, those sorts of things. I don't think I've ever heard anyone say stick into walls. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Uh, but, uh, as far as uh, the, you know, for telling stories, it's, it actually creates some fascinating things that artists can do both for a Spider-Man's positioning, you know, the way like uh-huh. trying to envision how a, a human being, you know, would crawl across a wall can be kind of of interesting. But then they also get to do really interesting angles when you're getting Spider-Man's point of view, Mm -hmm. like uh, different street angles. And and when he pulls Hogan up onto the, he's up on a rope somewhere uh, way up above. And yeah. Yeah. I I don't know if you could have a superpower, what would it be? It'd probably be flight. I just, (laughs) that'd be awesome. (laughs) See, and I couldn't do flight because of what I mentioned in the Twilight Zone episode. Well, if you I were would, under I your would own terrified. propulsion, would uh, would you still be terrified? 
Yes, because when I'm swimming in a lake, I'm under my own propulsion. Yeah. I can swim. And what if you uh, stopped using your powers responsibly when you were flying high up in the air and they went on the fritz? I don't know. Like when uh, in uh, in um, Astonishing X-Men, when Wing uh, loses his ability to fly. Yeah. I don't, I don't know, man. I don't know. I would not. I would not choose flight for sure. I would not choose flight. <laughs> what would you choose? <laughs> um, Invulnerability. <laughs> also, also, scared also not shape shifting for Todd. <laughs> no, not shape shifting. Shape shifting terrifies me almost as much more than flight. So wouldn't count. It Somebody definitely your, would. Your demons appears here. <laughs> <laughs> it definitely would not be shape shifting. It wouldn't be flight. I tell you, um, I think uh, psychic abilities would be pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> as long as I could control them. Briefly, um, I I thought you said sidekick abilities, which took me back, <laughs> back to the draft episode. I was like, yeah, that, that's pure Todd right there. Just, no, just want to be the abilities. sidekick, hanging out, support team, support. No, uh, Jean Grey, she has some pretty, she has some pretty amazing. Yes, I, uh, uh, I was able to adjust to what you started talking about. Like, oh, he didn't say sidekick; <laughs> he said sidekick. See, in vulnerability, we would be cool, except that, like, uh, of be awesome. You have to be in danger all the time. <laughs> yeah, and Wolverine feels everything. That's what we don't. I mean, I, we well, don't that's get. a that's a healing factor. That's not a vulnerability. Talk. Come on, let's oh, no, let, let's right. get pedantic here. Sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry, you're right. Um, invulnerability would be like Superman. Wouldn't be too bad. Yeah, I was yes, thinking of yes, a character yes, called Butterball from uh, from Avengers <laughs> Initiative, <laughs> and uh, it's fantastic. This he, is like a deliberately laughable ta- name. Yeah, they're, the, the writers well, having fun with this. He, wa- he wanted to be called the Boulder, but they called him Butterball <laughs> because he he got locked in at his state at like 16 and chubby. Like oh, his gosh. body won't change anymore. Yes, so he he <laughs> can take no damage, but he also can't get healthy. Like he can't he can't. Uh, but he doesn't get winded. He can't get muscular. He's yeah. just invulnerable as his body was at the sixteen. But but, but but he can't get winded or anything either. So he can he can run laps all day long, but it has zero effect on him. It doesn't have like the Hulk physique. And he has he has like no strength. He can't increase in strength, and so his punches have no impact because he's not physically fit. <laughs> but he, he but he can take any blow. But he can take every blow. That's amazing. That's like um the in the in in the new X-Men from this most recent Marvel now. Have you read any of that? I have not yet. I've read a little bit. There's a character named Gold Balls. <laughs> but he just makes fun of him all the time. And his superpower is that um when he's in danger, he shoots these like all these gold balls just start spilling out of him and he like can't really control it. Yeah, they just shoot out at first. <laughs> <laughs> like seriously, that's your superpower. He's like, I don't know what to do with this. <laughs> Obviously, it's super, but <laughs> so I can't. I can't pretend I'm normal. <laughs> well, Cyclops, Cyclops sees something in him, and he he becomes part of the the team. But it's really funny. I really superpower. do enjoy when uh, when combo writers start to play with the absurd superpowers and absurd yeah. uh, characters. It's a lot of fun. Uh, anyway, though, back to. <laughs> Well, I, think, uh, I think we're about done. Yes. Is that good? Okay, that wraps up this episode. Thanks for joining us. Remember, you can subscribe to The Protagonist in iTunes, and we would also encourage you to leave a review there. If you like what we hear, we want to say thank you to all of you who have left awesome reviews for us on iTunes. Uh, that helps us out a lot. Uh, you can find links to everything we've talked about in this episode, along with all, a list of all of our shows at protagonistpodcast.com. 
If you want to suggest a character for us to talk about or you have any comments about the podcast, you can send us an email at feedback at protagonistpodcast.com. You can find us on Twitter. We are at protagonistpod. You can also find each of us on Twitter. I'm at Todd K. Mack. He's at Jay Dorowski. Our producer, Andrew, is at Andrew underscore Dorowski. And you can uh, like our Facebook fan page called Protagonist Podcast. Uh, we love any comments, corrections, or any interaction uh, online. And thanks again for listening. We'll and be back and next we, week. we love patrons. We, we, we enjoy having and patrons. And we love patrons. We need so to update our script. We, <laughs> I know we do. Um, so if you would like to patronize us. You know you want to. <laughs> Support us on Patreon. You can go to patreon.com slash protagonist, or you can go uh, find a link on our webpage. And thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next week to discuss another great character and a great story. So long. So long. Um, Sam Raimi, the director of the Tobey Maguire film, excuse me, Tobey Maguire films. I'm just going to say that again because that was awkward.